This is the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. To find out more about Keystone, visit keystonerdu.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you appreciate the fact that we do work systematically through books of the Bible, uh, through the verses themselves. Um, not a lot of churches do that. A lot of churches, it's, it's very topical. It's very, and there's nothing wrong with a topical message. Today is somewhat topical. But the amount of Bible we get is, is big. And that's good. And we need it. And um, one thing I wanted to mention, is in, in one of the epistles, Paul says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate all good things unto him that teaches. And what that means is those of us that are sitting in the seats week after week, when we get taught good things, we need to communicate unto him that teaches. Meaning we need to encourage your pastor. Say, hey, thank you for that. Thank you for that message. I appreciate that. And that's what it means. And as a preacher, um, as a pastor, or even for Paul, I'm sure that was an awkward thing to write to say, hey, you need to congratulate me, you know, or you need to encourage me and tell me I taught well. But that's what the Lord is telling us is that, hey, when you hear good, tell the person who taught you that you appreciate that. Tell them. And so that's what that passage means. I, I had that written here. I, it's something that's been on my heart lately. Um, I try to do it, and um, it's a big encouragement. You never know, especially Monday morning, you know, the pastor's sitting there and thinking, you rethink these messages, like, line by line when you get done with them and think, boy, I said that weird. That, that, that was odd. Why did I say that? That didn't make any sense. Those people were just staring at me. Uh, so... Communicate to your pastor. Tell him, uh, tell him that you've enjoyed his messages when, when you have. When they sing, don't tell him anything. Um, but uh, Luke 19. Go ahead and get your Bibles open to Luke 19. Um, definitely a different message uh, for me today. I, I don't really know what kind of a speaker I am, uh, but I, I feel like I'm more of a teacher. Um, and so when you come to a story... Um, it's a different feel. It's a different feel. You've kind of got to tell a story and draw some application. Um, so definitely a different story. Let's pray real quick uh, before we get started. God, help us today um, as we come to your word for truth, uh, for hope and encouragement. God, I pray that as we begin a week of reflection, uh, leading to celebration uh, of victory over death in Christ, Lord, I pray that our hearts would burn in us. God, I pray we would want to know you more. Um, I pray that... I pray that we would want to live through Christ more. Uh, may we be challenged. Um, may we be transformed by your word and by your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so Palm Sunday. I remember uh, being taught the story of Palm Sunday in Sunday school as a child in children's church. I can vividly remember the flannel graphs. Who remembers flannel graphs? I'll tell you what. This projection screen ain't got nothing on a green 2 by 2 board of flannel graph. Let me tell you that right now. Um, But, you know, when we were a kid, that was great. It was something to look at besides that, you know, 65-year-old teacher. You know, for a 5-year-old, you're sitting there like, okay, come on. But, um, you know, the flannel graph on the flannel board, the story has been familiar. Um, When Josh initially asked me to preach this, I was a bit unsure, you know, about the story and thinking, okay, what what am I going to talk about? What truths are there? But as I began really studying this and diving into the passage, God really began working on my heart. And... um, you know, I'm confident that he has something for us today. So today we're going to talk about the elements of Coronation Day. The elements of Coronation Day. Um, at Queen Elizabeth's coronation, the royal regalia was staggering. There was no expense spared. 
the events of the day were filled with celebration, dignitaries, and royalty. The crown that was placed on her head was encrusted with giant rubies and sapphires and over 2,800 diamonds. And those were all surrounding one diamond that was 105 carats big. Needless to say, everything that could be lavish on her at that time was lavish on her. The events of the day were amazing. You know what, the coronation day here in our text was nothing like that. It was a humble coronation for a divine king, much like his humble birth. His birth in a stable, his coronation riding a donkey. His birth attended by shepherds, one of the lowest occupations that you could have in that time. His coronation attended by pilgrims who were rejected by the religious elite. You know what, it really wasn't an earthly coronation, it was a heavenly one. But he will have another coronation day one day, and he'll be back, and it will be glorious. It will be big. It won't be riding a donkey, and he will have another coronation day. So let's look at the elements of coronation day here. Um, Number one, I want you to see the circumstances around the coronation day. So let's look at Luke 19. Uh, By the way, this passage is recorded in all four Gospels in different ways, as all the writers always had their unique style. Um, some details in others. So we, we're going to bounce around a little bit today. We're, we'll mainly stay here in Luke, but we're going to bounce back and forth to some of these other passages as well. But let's look at Luke 19 and verse 28 and 29 to get started. So the circumstances around Coronation Day. Uh, verse 28 says, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. So I want to set the stage here a little bit with this first point. Um, and set the stage, and so bear with me, I might read some of the details here, um, so I don't mix up a bunch of the facts and places. If you've ever heard me speak uh, more than once, you've probably heard me completely mix up something. Um, when I get in front of people, it's weird. I, my, my logical process just goes out the window. Um, and so I may... Uh, I wanted to make sure I don't mix up some of these facts that, uh, throughout this message. So uh, you see here in verse 28, it says that he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is here. He, he is here continuing his journey that he began in Luke 9.51. Uh, Luke 9.51 records, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. So much of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee and the surrounding towns there. But here we see that the time had come. And it says, and he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the prophetical aspects of the circumstances. So why was Jesus making a trip to Jerusalem here? This is not where he lived. This is not where he spent much of his ministry. He had been there one or two times. But why was he going there? First, because it was time. Luke 9.51 says the time had come. But even more so, we know from biblical prophecy that the time had come. You see, because it was Passover season. It was Passover season, and hundreds of thousands of Jews would pour into Jerusalem at Passover week for the sacrifices and the feast. Passover was when the lambs were sacrificed for the sin of the people. You see, he was the lamb. 
He was the lamb. He was the spotless lamb. He was the only one that could sacrifice to pay for our sin. The time had come. It was time for the lamb to be sacrificed. However, it not only had to be at Passover, but it had to be at this Passover. That particular year, that Passover. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesies about the death of the Messiah being the atonement for sin. And I won't get into the nitty-gritty details and the math of Daniel's prophecy. But essentially, Daniel declares that 483 years from the date of the command to rebuild Jerusalem, that it says here in Daniel chapter 9, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Daniel predicted that the Messiah would come and be sacrificed 483 years. Guess what was 483 years to this date? That Passover. It was that Passover. It had to be then. It was then. And Jesus, obviously, being on his father's calendar, knew. And that's when he says, the time has come. I've, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to go. That's why it says in Luke, he steadfastly set his face. I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to minister on my way, and we'll talk about that, but I'm going to Jerusalem. He had to be there for that week. He had to set those events in motion. There was celebration on this day, and he knew his mission. But as he goes on his journey, he is journeying towards the great horror of his life. He knows, he's omniscient, he knows what's coming, he knows what his father has planned, and he's, he's journeying towards his death. He's journeying towards brutal mocking and, and beating and scorning. He's journeying toward the crown of thorns. And he's, he says, I'll go. I'm going. That's where I'm going. He was on a mission from his father. He was preparing to be separated from the father. When Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me, that's what he's talking about. He knows that separation is coming. He knows that as the righteous, the only righteous man ever, that he is going to become sin. He's going to become our sin. But he steadfastly set his face to go. So we see the prophetical aspect here, but we also see the geographical aspect. We see in Luke 9 that he was in Galilee and he was heading towards Jerusalem. And in our text, in Luke 19, we see that he reached the towns of Bethany and Bethpage. You know, all throughout this journey, he was healing and doing miracles among the people. To get there, he passed through Jericho, the Bible tells us, where he healed two blind men, recorded in Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. He converted Zacchaeus, the tax collector, recorded in the beginning of chapter 19. The trip from Jericho to Bethany was around 17 miles, all uphill, basically to the edge of the Mount Olives. And the Mount Olives was two miles, basically straight downhill to Jerusalem. Once you got to the top of Mount Olives, you could see Jerusalem there ahead. Just a couple weeks prior, he had been in Bethany. He had been there to raise Lazarus from from the dead, recorded in John 11. And after which he had to leave because death threats were on his life. Why did he have to leave then? Because it wasn't time for him to die. He had timing and it wasn't right then. He had to leave. And he comes back. In John 12, 1, we see he returns to Bethany. And John 12, 1 says that it was six days before the Passover. So this tells us of the timing. It tells us of where he was. 
So he gets there at the beginning of Passover week. What happens then? Mary anoints his feet, remember, with the costly oil. And what do some of the disciples say? Oh, that was a waste. Judas, mainly. Remember, he held the bag. He was the money guy. He was upset that she didn't give that money to the poor. Realistically, he probably knew what was coming, that he was going to be keeping money that he had stolen. But anyways, all that happens. Multiple times throughout these passages, Jesus had predicted his death. And multiple times it tells us that the disciples understood him not. They didn't catch it. They didn't catch any of what was actually happening. They were caught up in everything going on, and they didn't understand. It's six days before the Passover, according to John. The crowd of pilgrims is growing around him, and the miracles he was doing on his way were only adding to this crowd. Historians say that Jerusalem would swell to two and a half million people at Passover. Many think that there were thousands And even hundreds of thousands were in this throng of people heading towards Jerusalem. So these were the circumstances around his coronation. We see that he had his mission, but on his mission, he never stopped ministering. He was doing miracles the whole way. You know what, for us, our mission on this earth is to glorify God. But while we're on that mission, let's not fail to minister to people. Look all around you. People are hurting. People are struggling. People need encouragement. They need the gospel. They need the gospel for salvation, but they also need the gospel to break free from the chains of sin that are on their life. You know, often we're too busy. You know, hey, I've got to get to church this Sunday morning. You know, I've got this. Well, you know, and then we segment. Let's not talk about that. I'm guilty of it too. We segment our lives, and this is church time, and this is secular time, and this is home time. We need to be a part of it. We need to be a part of ministering at all times while we're on our mission. So we see the circumstances around his coronation. Next, I want you to see the cult for coronation day. So the next thing, the cult for coronation day. Look here at Luke 19, and let's look back at verse, um, let's look back just to verse 28. Let's look back at verse 28, and it says, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those two were sent their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And verse 35 says, Then they brought him to Jesus. You know what? Verse 30 there is, he starts out, he says, Whereas you enter, you'll find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Mark 11 states it pretty much the same way, and Matthew 21 adds that you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. It's two miles. Why does he need a ride? He's been walking everywhere previously. What's significant about this? That's because this is also a fulfillment of prophecy. This is also a fulfillment in prophecy. Look here, uh, look up at the screen. I think we've got Zechariah 9, 9 up there. You don't have to go back. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is is just and having salvation, lowly 
and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this was prophecy. This is, why else would you pick a donkey? Because this was prophecy. It, this is exactly fulfillment of that. What's significant about this donkey? In verse 30, the Bible tells us two things, and I think those two things tell us a lot about our Savior and about ourselves as well. First, it says that it's a colt, a young donkey. This is likely only a year or so old. Second, it says, on which no one has ever sat. So we see not only was it young, but also that it was unbroken, had never been ridden on. I, I'm, I, I will not pretend to be a farm guy. I will not pretend that I know anything about riding horses or donkeys for that matter. But from what I've read, that an untrained donkey is like getting on a bucking bronco. That thing will go crazy. So why does he pick that? Our Savior, the King of Heaven, used a humble, raw, unrefined, unimpressive animal with nothing to offer for his triumphal entry, triumphant entry into Jerusalem. You know what? Could we just submit to the fact that Jesus doesn't need our skills? He doesn't need our skill. He doesn't need our talent. He doesn't need our esteem and our self-worth. I don't need to be impressive, and you don't need to be refined. We say, well, I, I don't know if that's my calling. I don't know if that's my calling. I've never done that before. Well, neither had this colt. Neither had the colt. Never had anybody ride him before, but he carried the master. He carried the master. You know what? The colt's skill didn't matter. It didn't matter that it hadn't been broken in. It didn't matter that it was unrefined. Why? Because its creator was using it. His creator was using it. The creator has use for you, despite how raw you are, despite how unworthy I am, despite my inexperience, despite the lack of skill. The creator had use for an unrefined cult, and the creator has use for you. The creator has use for you. You know the only thing he needs Look back at verse 30 to 34 with me. Look back at a couple of these verses here. Sorry, i got to get back here. Uh, verse 30. Go into the village opposite you. Notice, notice the language that we're going to see repeated here multiple times. Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you loosing it? Some versions say, untie it. Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those two went on their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to him, why are you loosing the colt? Like, the untie it, untie it, loose it, loose it. Why does it repeat? You know, I, I don't know that this is intended here, but usually when the Lord repeats something multiple times, multiple times in a row through Scripture, he's trying to teach you something. You know the only thing the Lord needs? Because he doesn't need your skill. We already said that. He doesn't need our talent. He doesn't need our refinement. You know the only thing he needs? He needs you untied. He needs you untied. The colt is tied and records loose it or untie it multiple times. The only thing Jesus needs is for you to come to him ready to be used for his purpose. That's the only thing he needs. Loosen the rope that is holding you where you are. Loosen it. Untie that rope. What is keeping you back from serving the Lord? What is keeping you back from glorifying the Lord fully? Whatever that is, untie it. 
untie it. Let go. Whether that's shame, whether that's guilt, whether that's your past, whether that's a fear of just being, uh, saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, whatever that situation is, whether it's painful memories or idols that you've built up. By the way, those are definitely ones you need to lose and get rid of. But those things that you've built up in your life that are keeping you from serving the Lord, untie them and just bring yourself to Jesus. That's the only thing he needed here with this colt. He just needed it brought to him. Jesus didn't need a skilled horse. He didn't need a donkey that had been trained or a glamorous entry. But verse 31 says, the Lord has need of it. Think of it. The Lord needed that donkey. You know what? And he needs you. He needs you ready. He needs you ready to serve. He needs you prepared for him and ready. The Lord had need of a raw, unimpressive young, young donkey. He also desires to use you and I too. Also, let's look at the details. So we see the details about the donkey, but look, let's look at the details in his request here and see what that tells us about the Lord. Uh, let's, look, um, let's look back at verse 30. And I know I'm reading this a lot, but let's let the word sink in here. Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied. So he knows exactly where it's at. He knows exactly where it's at in that village on which no one has ever sat. He knows exactly the fact that nobody's ever sat on that. And then he knows that they're going to ask, hey, why are you taking that colt? Why are you taking that donkey? The Lord knew all about this. You know what? The, just the fact that he took this donkey here is, is, is such an interesting thing. You know what? We have, we have Uber and Lyft. You know, and I was trying to figure out if this was like Uber shared ride or Uber X or what was going on here. But then I remembered that they had the predecessor to Uber. This was Juber. This was, <laughs> sorry, that might take a second. But anyways, this was Juber. They grabbed, they grabbed a borrowed donkey and they went with it. Anyways, I, I had that joke in my head and I, I had to do it. But anyways, I apologize. Let's move on. <laughs> Where it was going, and so he says he, he knew where it was, and that they find it would tide. He he'd never been there before. He had never been there. How would he know that donkey was there? How would he know the donkey would be tied? How would he know that it was a colt, but it was also with its mother? Which uh, I think it was Matthew or Mark records that the the colt was with his mother too. He knew every detail about that colt. God knew every detail about that situation, down to what they'd find and how they'd find it. And he also knew what he needed. You know what, can we stop for a minute and recognize that we have a detailed God? He knows every detail, every intimate detail of your life. He knows the tragedies that you came into. The tragedy you're yet to face, he knows. The trial that's coming, he knows that too. God is in the details of your life. He's never been surprised. He knows. Better than all that, he cares and he's interested. God is in the details and he's got plans for you that you didn't know about. You can trust him. Just rest in the fact that God knows and he already made plans for you. God knows. He knows about the sleepless nights. He knows about the child that you stress out about. Lord knows we're all there. He knows those things. He knows about the big test that's coming. He knows about the, about the worries, that, about the stress you're having with family. He knows those details, and he cares. 
God cares. So we see in the element of the cult that God wants to use us despite what we think we can bring to the table. And we also see that we have a detailed, all-knowing God who cares deeply for us. So we see the circumstances in the cult. Next, I want to look at the crowd on Coronation Day. The crowd on Coronation Day. Let's look at verse 34 to 38 here. Luke 19, 34. It says, And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Um, I also want to look at John 12. Um, Go there with me. This is one of the other references here. Go to John 12 and look at verse 12. I think it's on the screen too. Good. All right. Uh, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. You know what I mentioned earlier that, um, recall that this isn't a small crowd. This isn't a hundred people like are in this room. This is thousands and even hundreds of thousands of people pouring out behind Jesus, in front of Jesus, grabbing branches from palm trees, throwing their clothes down. This was no small event. He'd been drawing a crowd from healing blind men, casting out devils, raising the dead, and many other miracles. And like I said, possibly hundreds of thousands, and that's not a Baptist estimation where we blow up our numbers and make ourselves feel good. Um, Matthew 21.9 records that the multitudes who went before and followed after So this wasn't just some people following Jesus. This was just a massive crowd of people heading that two-mile stretch down into Jerusalem. The scene here is raucous. It is loud. It is probably getting close to out of control. People are yelling. People are screaming. They're laying their clothes down. They're climbing up trees. Palm palm trees aren't short. They're climbing up trees to cut these branches down. This scene was out of control. It's getting to a fever pitch. They're praising. They're worshiping loudly. The Bible says that it cried aloud, cried out. So first of all, I want to see the conduct of the crowd. Verse 35 says, many spread their clothes on the road. What does this mean? This is an act of submission. This is an act of submission. In 2 Kings, there is a reference to people spreading their clothes on the ground before the king with the horse. It is an act of making yourself low. And signifying that you're placing yourself under the king's feet. It is an act of submission. Here they are showing themselves in subjection and in submission to the king. Not only was there submission, but there was also jubilance and celebration. John 12, what we just read, says says there that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. The palm tree branches celebrated, it it was celebration and jubilee. There was joy, there was celebration, there was jubilance. Their king had arrived, or or so they thought, we'll get there too. But they were celebrating. This This was excitement, this was celebration. But there was also worship, adoration, and praise. Let's look at verse, um, back in our main text, Luke 19, look at verse 37 and 38. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God 
with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There was also praise, adoration, and worship. John 12 also states this as well in verse 13 through 15. It says in verse 13 through 15, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, behold, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Look at what Luke says there in verse 37. Let's look, look at that closely here. Luke nineteen thirty-seven. Why were they praising him? It says, The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. John twelve sixteen actually says, The people who had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead bore witness. These people were in the crowd. They just, he raised Lazarus from the dead. These towns were small. Like, there's no way you're raising somebody from the dead without word going, and then you come back, and it's going to be a fever pitch there. It's going to be crazy. They had seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle. They had seen this mighty works, John th- or Luke nineteen thirty seven, and they couldn't contain their praise. They couldn't contain it. You know what the proper response to the presence of the king in your life is praise, adoration, celebration, and worship. That is the proper response. You know what the king is in my life? I've seen him do wonderful, mighty things. And my response should be all of those. It should be praise. It should be celebrating. It should be adoration. And there should be worship. You know, when you've seen God work in your life, the praise should flow out. And you should submit to him. You should celebrate. And you should worship. Verse 37 says, they cried out with a loud voice. You know what? But their praise was also scriptural. Let's look at Psalm 118. I think it's going to be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 118 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteousness shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray thee. O Lord, O Lord, I pray thee, send now prosperity. Here we go. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he's given us light. Blind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. That's save now. That's what Hosanna means. They cried Hosanna, and they said, save now. They thought they're... The the people thought that he was a political king. They were looking for a political savior to rescue them from Roman oppression. But their their praise was scriptural. John 12, 16 says his disciples didn't understand these things. Multiple times he had told them of his death. And the Bible says they didn't comprehend what he was telling them. Additionally, these folks were, were a little confused here too. They thought they were getting a political savior. First of all, let me tell you, Jesus isn't coming to save you politically. He, 
yes, there are moral things and good things in politics that we ought to pay attention to, but Jesus ain't sending us a, a president to save us. He is here to save us. And so let's make sure we keep our eyes on him. But, but um, th- these people here, they were confused. They didn't understand. God doesn't require you to be a theologian to worship him and praise him. He doesn't need you to understand every aspect of what's going on. He doesn't need you to understand prophecy. These people didn't understand what was going on. He doesn't need you to understand that. If you understand that he is worthy, then just go ahead and praise him with all you have. He doesn't need you to know systematic theology. He doesn't need you to know all of that. He just wants your praise because he is worthy. So we see the the conduct of the crowd. I also want to see the critics in the crowd. Look here at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, there was more than those that were enjoying it and celebrating. There were some here that, that weren't too happy about it. There were some, here are some Pharisees, they weren't involved in the worship. They weren't laying their coats down in submission. They weren't celebrating. They were criticizing. They were in denial of who he was. They didn't think he was due the worship. And mainly, they realized that crowd was way beyond their control. You know what? Wherever there is genuine praise and worship, there will likely be some critics. There will likely be some critics, and don't let that silence you. Don't let the critical tongue, the critical eye, the judgmental spirit, don't let that silence your praise. If you are praising scripturally, praise on. Praise on and enjoy it. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. You know, wherever there is much being made of the Savior, if the crowd is big enough, there will be those who don't like what's happening. Don't let that distract you from your worship. Because it wasn't for them anyways. It wasn't for them anyways. You weren't praising for their approval. So just enjoy it. Don't let it distract you. If your praise and worship is scriptural, pay no attention to the superficial that are casting judgment. Just praise the Lord. Whatever that is for you. If that's raising your hand, if that's both hands up, because you actually put on your deodorant that morning, just praise him. If that's like me, grew up very conservative music, very un, you know, unlike what we have here, and you're, sometimes your hand gets up and then you put it back down because you don't know what you're doing, uh, just praise him. Praise the Lord. You know, so we've seen, the, uh, we've seen the critics, but look at Jesus' response here. Look at verse 40. And it's funny that Josh is going to be in Habakkuk next week. We won't really dive into this, but this is a reference to prophecy in Habakkuk. It says, but he answered them. So he answers the critics, the Pharisees, and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. If these should keep silent. Outside of the reference to prophecy here that we're not going to get into, I'm not going to get it to a point where a stone has to praise the Lord because I'm standing so silent. Praise God when he is due that praise. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. You know what? Up until now, Jesus had always silenced the praise. Remember, read, throughout the stories, when he heals somebody, what does he say? Go and tell no man. Now, he knew that they weren't going to do that. They were going to tell somebody. I mean, hey, 
Bartholomew, why are you blind? You know, why aren't you blind anymore? Well, I don't know. You know, Jesus healed me, that's why. You know, so he knew that wasn't going to happen, but what was he doing when he kept saying, go and tell no man? You know, go and tell nobody. Don't, don't tell anybody, because it wasn't time. It wasn't time for the, to get all the religious elite riled up. It wasn't time for all that to happen, but he knew this was God's calendar. He knew this was God's time. It had to be this Passover this week, six days from now. He knew, and so you know what he did? He said, hey, if they don't cry out, the stones will. And he, he, he knew that it was time that the religious leak could get fired up. Lastly, I want to look at the Christ on Coronation Day. You know what, there's so many, I, I love the details in this story. There's so many applications for us that we've been through in this story. There's many things to focus on, but ultimately this story is all about Christ. This story is all about him. And I just want to highlight a few things that this passage teaches us about Christ. Number one, we see his omniscience and his deity was on display. He knew all the details about that cult. He knew where they'd find him. He knew that they'd let him use the cult when they said the Lord needs him. God knows what's going on in your life. He's omniscient. He knows. He is God. Every hurt, every pain, every sleepless night, he cares. But not just his omniscience and deity, his humility was on display. The king rode a young, raw, unbroken-in donkey into Jerusalem for his triumphant ride. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a humble savior. He came for you not to force his way into your life, not to conquer his way into your praise, not to conquer his way into salvation for you, but he came to stand at the door and knock. He came there to say, can I come in? He came in humility. We also see his authority and power on display. You know what? It didn't matter that the donkey had never been ridden or trained. Why? Because the creator was sitting on it. That donkey would have thrown anybody else off, most likely, but the creator's on it. He calmed the waves and the storms. He can ride a donkey. He's got it covered. He can take care of the circumstances in your life. The circumstances going on in your life are not too big for him. He can control those. His authority and power were on display there. Not only that, but his mission and his purpose were on display. He fulfilled prophecy. He did it on God's calendar. He was on a mission, and he was steadfastly set on it. You know, we call it a triumphant ride, but, man, if you're Jesus, I don't know how triumphant that is. You know in six days what's coming. He's heading for betrayal and beating and mocking and ultimately crucifixion. We see his mission and purpose on display. We also see his worth on display. You know what? He was worthy of all the buzz, all the celebration, the jubilance, the praise, and the worship that was going on. However crazy it got, he was worthy of it all. He was then, he still is now. He still is now. Every expense that we spend on Sundays, 
All the preparation that goes into the worship music, all the time that goes into the messages, all the time that goes into our connect groups, all the time that goes into all of that, he's worth it all and more. He's worth it all. He was worthy then and he's worthy now of our praise. Let's not be silent. Let's not be silent. You know, in conclusion, perhaps you've heard the stories of Jesus. Maybe you've even been around church for a while. But you've realized that there's never been a specific time in your life that you have accepted that gift that he paid for on the cross. You've never made him king. You know what, if that's you, let me say to you that he took that journey to the cross. He endured all that for you. He did it for you. And if you were the only one on earth, he'd have done it for you. Make today that day. Make today that day that you would settle it once and for all. Don't let the doubts in your mind, don't let the worries in your mind keep you from settling it all. Make today the day that you put your trust in him for salvation. You know, for those of us that have been saved, we've been there, we've done that. Where in this passage, where in this message is God speaking to you? Whatever God wants from you today, would you give it to him? Just untie it. I don't know what it is. I know God's got things he's talking to me about. Would you just give it to him? Let him have control. Give him the praise. Give him the praise that he's due. Give him the worship. Don't hold back. Submit your life to him. Put your, lay your, go under his feet. Lay your clothes down at his feet. Say, God, you know what? I'm going to submit to you as my king. Praise him and worship him. This has been the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. For more information about Keystone Church, visit keystonerdu.church. Please subscribe to hear future messages. Thank you.